Assalamu alaikum, bismillahirrahmanirrahim. In the name of God, the Beneficent, the Merciful, I am Ubaidullah Evans, and I'm hosting the Renovatio podcast. Today, I have the honor of conversing with Dr. Thomas Hibbs, who is the J. Newton Razor Senior Professor of Philosophy and Dean Emeritus at Baylor University. He served as a department chair at Boston College, a dean at Baylor, and a university president at the University of Dallas. Dr. Hibbs, how are you? I'm excellent. Very glad to be with you. Good, good. It's good to be in conversation. We're speaking today kind of exactly about an article that you wrote for Renovatio, but that article is certainly our point of departure. The title of that article was the egalitarian objection to liberal education. Can you take us into a little bit of what you were thinking about when you wrote the article? And I just want to say, you uh, talked about Professor Danielle Allen, who teaches at the University of Chicago, a class that she taught on the Declaration of Independence. Now, I I was heartened by that reference for two reasons. One, I live on the campus of the University of Chicago. And two, I thought the fact that she taught morning classes with, as you mentioned, some of the most elite undergrads in the nation, and also evening classes with adult learners that came from a wide assortment of social, you know, economic backgrounds. But take take us into a little bit of, you know, what you were, I guess, driving at with the authorship of this article. So it, it's a kind of common objection to traditional liberal education that it's elitist, that it is designed to train and keep intact an upper class in society, a class of rule and of wealth and perhaps of race. That's a kind of common objection. And historically, there certainly have been moments when that has been true, that liberal education served those ends. And so I was trying to tease out more broadly what the merits of the objection are. I think that that there are other ways of formulating the objection. It's not just an objection against a kind of elitism. It can also be an objection against a kind of colonialism that could be connected to elitism. So there are various formulations of this objection to liberal education. I only went into some of those in the article. I do think one of the things that I've learned from authors and thinkers like Daniel Allen and others is the the way in which liberal education in some forms have proven to be a key resource for those who have been denied mainstream education, for those who have been denied freedom. One of the things that strikes me more broadly about liberal education in American history is that We don't have a lot of strong articulations of liberal education in mainstream America. We have more a kind of instrumental model of education, which comes to some extent out of a a tradition that goes back to Ben Franklin's autobiography. We have a kind of pragmatic tradition in education, which comes out of Dewey. And one of the things that, one of the insights that's grown on me over the years is that some of our most profound articulations of 
liberal education are actually found in the African-American tradition. Mm -hmm. Frederick Douglass, for example, Mm -hmm. um, Anna Julia Cooper, whom I did not talk about in the essay, was a defender of liberal education. The best thing I think ever written by an American on liberal education is the chapter in on education in W.E.B. Du Bois's Souls of Black Folk. Mm-hmm. Now, Du Bois himself has been criticized as being a kind of elitist within the black community. So there, sure, there sure. The, the argument resurfaces in certain ways. I actually think there are some interesting responses to that in Souls of Black Folk, particularly in that last chapter on the, the sorrow songs. But I was trying to tease out what the objection amounted to, and then also to suggest that at least in some contexts, it is those who have been deprived of liberal education who have seen the point and purpose of it most dramatically and who have profited from it. It's sometimes self-liberal education. Think of Malcolm X in prison, for example, mm-hmm. right? Reading books and, and strengthening his self-determination, affirming his own sense of his own intelligence, right? And so I think there it's a it's a kind of complicated question. I think there are there there are merits to particularly in certain contexts the objection that it's elitist and colonial, but I don't think that covers all of the possible ways of talking about liberal education. No, I think that's a a beautiful synopsis of the article. I want to direct your attention to something that you quoted from Professor Allen talking about, you know, of course she was referencing her class And she was talking about the empowerment of human beings as language-using creatures is an essential component to democratic citizenship. That that resonated with me, you know, very deeply. On the one hand, I do understand some of the objection to what has been termed the logocentrism of Western culture, right? That it, it, in a sense, can negate other ways of knowing other ways of, 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 of experiencing. However, if we are talking about great public discourse, if we're talking about that collective attempt to know, to reason, to, to you know, in some cases, argue, to exchange, how can that be done except through the medium of language, right? And liberal education focuses on empowering human beings as language-using creatures. Maybe you can elaborate on that a little bit. So I think, and I've just, I'm continuing to learn from scholars like Daniel Allen about this, but I think the great passage on this comes from Frederick Douglass's narrative of a life. When he realizes, when he's, he's moved from the Eastern Shore of Maryland to Baltimore, still a slave, and in Baltimore, the family seems initially at least kind and generous. And the the mother in the house begins to teach him to read. And the father comes in and cuts it off and says, we can't can't teach slaves to read. We can't give them this sense of their own intelligence. And that, that forbidding of him from learning is for him an insight into the incompatibility between slavery, subservience, inequality on the one hand, and education on the other. That that education done rightly breaks open all of those false narratives. Mm 
mm-hmm. about inferiority and inequality. Mm-hmm. And so the, then the, the brilliant thing that Douglas does, having been denied official reading instruction, right, formal reading instruction, is he goes out into the streets of Baltimore where he's, he's playing with the white kids and he challenges them with pieces of chalk or stone to write words in the road that they know and he'll write his words. But meanwhile, he's learning from them the words that they've just written out. And this, this hunger in him, it's almost indistinguishable at certain points, the hunger to learn and the hunger for freedom mm. in his soul. And, and this, this capacity for language that enables him to broaden his sense of what's possible, right? I mean, the, the, the opening pages of narrative where he says that he doesn't know who his father is, he doesn't know exactly his background, his family lineage, and that it's by design that slavery keeps the slave ignorant of all sorts of knowledge that is that goes into knowing who I am and what I'm about, that, that the expansion of his vocabulary is an expansion of his world. There's a, there's a great line from the German philosopher Wittgenstein, who wrote a bunch of things that are very difficult to read. <laughs> Quite. <laughs> one line that I, I love from him is the, the limits of my language mark the limits of my world. That's it. And, and so to have a broad and deep vocabulary, to have my imagination formed by rich stories and examples gives me the possibility of imagining much more for myself and for others than I would otherwise. So that, and that is, of course, one of the key things that we get from liberal education is what we used to call in grade school way back when language arts. Yes. Right? Yes. The expansion of vocabulary, the ability to read carefully and critically, the the ability to describe richly. I would say culturally, we suffer from a deprivation of language and of imagination that we don't have whatever and this is this is rich and poor and it extends to all races we suffer from a truncated vocabulary when it comes to success and failure good and evil the beautiful and the ugly justice and innocence and mercy we've got a really contracted vocabulary now and it some of it is, is toxic politics reducing us to slogans, angry slogans, and some of it is just a, a kind of deprivation in the wider culture of the ability to describe the ability of storytelling. I mean, for you know, another one of the great scenes in Douglas's narrative is that he starts a Sabbath scripture reading school, and he talks about all of the other slaves involved in this as great souls, great scholars. Mm-hmm because they're also learning to read and he calls them great scholars. Mothers, yes. And this, this, this communal bond around, this is something they're keeping us from. This is a treasure for us. We are capable of learning. Mm-hmm. We are capable of, of shared wonder mm-hmm. and teaching and learning of one another. That that's a powerful moment for Douglas in, in his own life story and in the story of his people. You know, I've, 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 I've read where some social commentators have called our current, you know, culture 
a kind of necro-linguistic culture. It's a culture that, in a sense, celebrates the death of language and the ability to exchange with nuance and depth. This is something that, and I think that anyone who, you know, relegates this to just an inheritance of the imperial West, I would challenge them to broaden their own, I guess, cultural horizons. Because, you know, speaking about the Islamic tradition in particular, the tradition in which I'm, I'm, you know, trained and, and, and learned, there has always been an emphasis on rhetoric, on logic, on argumentation. And so to see some people afraid to embrace these because they see it somehow as an extension of the colonial legacy of the imperial West, I know I, I find that I find that troubling. However, and maybe you can speak to this, maybe their fear is not that we are merely talking about, you know, ways of knowing and the ability to express ourselves in language, but maybe they see in that emphasis of liberal education or upon liberal education kind of a reinscription of certain sensibilities, certain hierarchies of value, certain you know concretizations of aesthetic beauty, etc., and that those almost necessarily come with liberal education. Liberal education being a kind of Trojan horse for European cultural hegemony, and maybe this is their yeah. concern. Yeah. So I, let me make two comments about this. I think this is a really interesting topic mm-hmm. and question. One of them has to do with Islam. So there's, even today, when I think the evidence is pretty clear on this question, even today in the Christian West, there are some who want to argue. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Catholic teaching at a Baptist school, doing an interview here on the campus of Zaytuna. <laughs> The only this is this is there are there are lots of bad things about our contemporary world. This this it's probably wouldn't things. have happened or a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. And and I'm a great beneficiary of the hospitality of both the Baptists and my Muslim friends here at Zaytuna. There still in the Christian West is an attempt to argue that the great flourishing in Christian thought in the Middle Ages. I work a lot on Thomas Aquinas did not depend upon Islam. That, that, and, and these arguments are, are really not sound at all. They never were. Uh, Aquinas, we know from great uh, Aquinas scholars over the last 30 years, is deeply dependent for his reading of Aristotle and ancient texts upon Avicenna, especially, but Ghazali, Averroes, and others. And the, the dependence is clearer the more research we do on this. But what's that about? That's about an idea that Christianity wants to have a a pure and untainted direct contact with the classical world of education. And uh, pure and untainted by what? By Islam, right? So there, there, there is a kind of colonialist assumption, a desire for a pure, so we have the pagan world, right? They didn't have a world religion, a, a revealed religion, but we want the Christians to have direct access to that unmediated by Muslims and in some cases Jews, who were also very important in this conversation of course. in the Middle Ages. 
So there is a kind of desire for cultural purity in these really bad arguments that Christians in the Middle Ages were not really all that dependent upon Islamic thinkers. Oh, yes, they were. In fact, the greatest of them, Thomas Aquinas, was perhaps more dependent than almost anyone else on them. So you have that where there is an example of this, right? But when you go back and see what Islam was doing, Islam was recovering a great and continuing and extending a great tradition of learning themselves. They were not rejecting that tradition. No. The, the, other, the other comment I'd make about this is one of the thinkers who's often in the canon, although he's not strictly Western, Dostoevsky, a great 19th century Russian writer, uh, avidly read by Richard Wright, avidly read by Ralph Ellison. There's a lot of good scholarly work on this. The, the opening of Ellison, I think the greatest American novel, Invisible Man, is, is, is a riff off of Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground. So, but if you read Dostoevsky, Dostoevsky's really concerned in the 19th century in Russia about what he takes to be corrupting Western rationalist influences infiltrating Russia. Right? So, so he's something you mentioned earlier, what might be called a kind of a logocentrism, but I would frame as a kind of narrow reduction of human nature to reason construed primarily in its calculating and abstract mode, right? Dostoevsky is, is really worried about what this does to the whole of human nature, to human imagination, to human passion, right? And, and to reason that thinks in a different way, mm -hmm. right? right. Reason, yeah. can think, reason can operate in different ways. Of course. And there are reductionist accounts of reason that have at times been dominant in liberal education. Dostoevsky is, he's often, I mean, he's typically read in every great books program, even though he's Russian, he's read in Western great books program. He is a great critic of certain strains of Western rationalism that he sees coming in to Russia and corrupting the culture, right? Corrupting this rich appreciation of the whole of humanity, not its reduction to calculative reason, but imagination, will, passion, and feeling. So I, I agree with Dostoevsky. I think certain strains of Western rationalism uh, do reduce experience to a very limited set of options and exclude all sorts of other things that we ought to understand and learn from. If I could loop back for the moment to W.B. Du Bois, I mentioned this charge of elitism, the talented 10th, right? All of that. There are grounds for, for this charge against Du Bois. But, you know, he ends the Souls of Black Folk with the sorrow songs, which are the songs that were initially sung by the slaves, right? And then have been passed down and then eventually would be at the roots of gospel and jazz in this country, right? Great, great distinctively... American, or you might say African-American traditions, some of the only things that Americans have actually contributed to, to arts that we really invented. But it's, it's the African-American community that invented these things. And, and there he says, in, in these initially 
barely articulate expressions of human longing that then became developed into a rich language, some of it scriptural, some of it from traditions borrowed from homelands, right? That you can hear the longing for justice and the hope and the ultimate vindication of justice that, that speaks especially to this community, but that speaks to every human heart that can be moved. That's not abstract reason that he's appealing to there, right? He's appealing to the expression of emotion and feeling, longing for full articulation and recognition, right? And it's a beautiful moment in the book, but he ends that not with an elitist group that's received a high-level Western German university education, right? It's this, it's this, in a sense, not formally educated expression it's, of the longing for justice. It's, it's in a sense, it's a celebration of pathos. You know, a celebration yes. Yes. of, you know, the in like the the instructive nature of feeling. And I yes. think that some people, when they think about you know liberal education, they think that those kinds of perspectives will almost be necessarily occluded from view that that like those kinds of perspectives are inadmissible and that's why I couldn't help but but think as I was reading your article he's talking about a tradition of liberal education writ large of course I I, I could I could clearly see that you were situating that within you know the United States of America and this is where the Declaration of Independence and Reading the Declaration together, you know, as a as a as a, a group of citizens, becomes a, a worthwhile and useful activity. But as you mentioned in the article, and I thought this was just a brilliant quotation, that it is not a political drug with predictable results. Meaning, if we engage this process of a shared reading, a shared knowing. It does not produce, you know, predictable results. There's a there's a, a a wide panoply of meanings, perspectives, you know, experiences that can enrich all of our, you know, perspectives. Yeah, you can't predetermine what's going to happen if you put Plato's Republic, Tony Morrison's beloved, a novel by say Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky a Richard Wright novel, you simply can't predict the, the music of the music of Mozart next to the music of Billie Holiday. You you can't predict, and I think those juxtapositions are important. Absolutely. Particularly in our time. So so when you said writ large, yeah, writ large, but also attentive to the more local particularized communities and voices that have been marginalized, certainly, but who speak often against the mainstream tradition of liberal education, but in a way that they're actually developing and using some of the very tools that those people they're against uh, used, uh, and they're using them to their own end. So it's 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 broad and inclusive with a canon that. So I mean, you could read Dostoevsky and then read those African American novelists I mentioned. Of course, right? And of course. and they're they're all going to be equally critical 
of a certain mainstream tradition of Western rationalism and education. But reading them is a liberal education in its own right. That is reading reading Ellison and and Dostoevsky. I think what you're saying is is exactly correct. And it's often the critics. I mean, there the other thing about this is even if you look at kind of the traditional great books list that Mortimer Adler and others put together, they're not a lot of minority voices or authors on that list. But one thing that is true of that list is that you cannot advocate for it or read it and think that it is a unified monolithic view of the truth. Hobbes and Machiavelli disagree vehemently with Plato, right? There's some continuity there, but Aquinas does not agree with David Hume who's an atheist, right? So it, at a minimum, an honest reading of that tradition is an introduction, not to a monolithic unified conception of what the truth is, but to a series of important debates. Now, are there other debates? Are there other ways of approach? Yes, right? But but that, that tradition at its best, and it's often operated not at its best, but as much less than that, sometimes in a really bad way, at its best, that tradition is one that is willing to look at critique and criticism and already has it internal to the tradition. Now, many people who appropriate that tradition and teach it don't recognize that sufficiently, but that's that's a misreading on their part. And one of the things about the other authors that we've been talking about, especially for this topic, African-American authors, is that they can help us to see blind spots not just in the tradition, but in the way we appropriate and teach that tradition. Absolutely. And that's, that's really important for those of us who do this for a living. You know, I, that's I, really you know, I just I just want to acknowledge that, you know, you're, 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 you're acknowledging the University of Chicago quite a bit. You just talked about Mortimer J. Adler. And then, of course, yeah, Daniel, uh, you know, Allen. But one of the things that she mentioned, and I think this is a misgiving of some people who, as you mentioned, make those egalitarian objections to liberal education is that, you know, you take a document like the Declaration of Independence and they immediately go to the inconsistency between what is stated in the document and the lives of the founders, right? The lives of the authors of the document. And one thing that you quote from Daniel Allen is that, you know, this does not undermine the moral value of the text. And she mentioned that, you know, Frederick Douglass, in a speech given in Rochester, New York, what to the slave is the 4th of July, right? He mentions with very powerful rhetorical tools that- A blistering, blistering speech. A blistering speech, right? You know, this, this, you know, liberty- that you celebrate and esteem for me has not meant what it means for you. Saying that this is also an admissible aspect. This is also a desirable component to a conversation about liberal education. And that we can talk about those things. Like our our conversation need not be merely a celebration of the Declaration of Independence, but rather a critical examination 
of the Declaration of Independence, right? Right. Yeah. That's such a brilliant, searing speech that he gives. And I I think if we go back to something you said at the beginning that's come up a couple of times, uh, a certain notion of reason as abstract principle, the Declaration is certainly about reason as abstract principle. There are these inalienable rights, right? and then we, we list them. Abstract principle is, uh, you're never going to get completely around it, and we, we need it. The sciences wouldn't work without abstract principle, and something like democracy wouldn't work without some versions of abstract. But abstract principle, I think Douglas is implicitly pointing out, doesn't require the kind of self-scrutiny that education that is about the whole person. What do I mean by that? It's not just about affirming some abstract principles. The problem Douglas sees is that his audience is affirming these abstract principles and failing to see the way in which their lives are living contradictions of actually bringing that principle into reality, right? They're very comfortably living at one level, affirming the principle and living in a way that's diametrically that denies the principle in practice. A different kind of education, which involves not just abstract reason, it does involve that because Douglas never denies the principle in that speech, right? But it also involves irony. It involves the invocation of the imagination and the passions. It involves blistering critique when necessary right? A a complete education like that, which appeals to reason, imagination, passion, and which involves the the ironic forcing of the audience to look at themselves, right? I'm not just going to come up here and celebrate our shared agreement on the declaration. I'm going to try and use a rhetoric that turns you in upon yourself so that you see yourself differently. And you see the contradiction between your life and the principle. That's in a way how Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man ends with a reflection on the principle, right? And and wondering, is this principle something that has hoodwinked us and deceived us? And should we reject it? Or is there something about this principle that we need, but we got to find the right orientation toward it? We got to embed it in our civic life in ways that we haven't yet. That's that wider version of liberal education that I think Douglas is appealing to, right? One that involves reason, imagination, passion, the use of irony, the use of mockery even, right? To wake people up, to see. And that's in a way a version of what Socrates was trying to do long ago in his own way, right? He was mocking, using irony toward what? The rich and the powerful in his society, who thought that they already had all the answers. I don't, I don't want to turn Socrates into a, a kind of progressive rebel against the establishment. There's a lot more going on there than, than just that. But that element in Socrates is something that's reflected in what Douglas is doing, right? The, the, the courage to stand up and say, you don't really know what you're talking about. And, and because of that, you maybe should quit invoking this principle in the way you're currently doing. Yes. You know, you know, we have just a few minutes and there's so much that we could we could cover. I feel as though 
we're really just getting started. But I want to talk about, you know, toward the end of the article, you cited a couple of really powerful passages from Hannah Arendt about, you know, hierarchy would be putting too sharp a point on it. But I would say that education presupposes a difference in rank between the pupil and the teacher. And that for the pupil, the teacher represents the world. As she points out, showing that student where the treasures are buried and what their value is. And some people have, have, have soured on this notion of education in the name of freedom and liberation. And I thought it was very, very beautiful the way you talked about, you know, kind of walking children, walking young people into what it means to be conscious people, active citizens. And that does require a transmission of sorts. Now, as you know, uh, a Muslim thinker, you know, student of Islam, I'm very comfortable with this idea. In our tradition, this is called synod. There's a chain, right? We're very comfortable with the idea that, you know, you are a recipient of a tradition of learning. And along with the text, we are trying to inculcate certain taste, certain sensibilities, certain proclivities. Why do you think this is such an unpopular, well, it's not completely unpopular, but it's, it's becoming an unpopular idea in contemporary America? Well, I think there's some truth, as, as we've talked about a number of times here, there's some truth to this critique, right? Because often the, the sensibilities have not just been about this text or this music, but they've been attached to views of race and so forth. So, And sometimes it's hard to sort those out. I do think the point that Arendt is making in this, in this book, Between Past and Future, it's a series of essays. She's writing about the crisis in education. And and she argues that for the sake of what is revo eventually revolutionary in every child, education has to be, to some extent, traditional. What does she mean about that? She certainly didn't mean that it, it had to just read the ancient Greeks. She's, she's involved at the forefront of, of very avant-garde 20th century philosophy, right? So she's not it's not just about repeating the past. What she meant was, if you're going to educate just admit to yourself, you're going to have to make choices that certain things are going to be studied and looked at. And at least right now, other things are not for the moment. Now, what you include, I've argued for a, a, a broad way of teaching these things that includes potentially lots of contemporary texts and, and a number of traditionally marginalized authors as being important to education. But even then you're making choices, right? And you're saying, you're not necessarily saying to students, the whole truth, or even in some cases, much truth as at all, is lodged in these texts. But these are questions and issues and topics and authors that if you spend your time with them, it will be worth your while, right? And, and wherever you end up, again, it's completely unpredictable where people are going to end up from engaging in these texts. I, I have my moral philosophy class we do it chronologically backward, and we start with a few weeks of Nietzsche trying to take his critique of morality and of religion quite seriously. And then we bend back to him as we're reading other authors. 
I want my students at a Baptist university to take these arguments and objections quite seriously, right? I'm, I'm not telling them that we ought to turn all of Baylor's education into texts of Nietzsche, right? Or the teachings of Nietzsche. But I am saying there are valuable things in here. And also these are matters that you will be better off if you reckon with them, if you spend some time thinking about these matters. And, and in fact, if you don't have that, young people don't have anything really to rebel against in their education, right? I mean, and, and that spirit of rebellion is in part a way of establishing one's own freedom, one's own path, but it's it's always to some extent in conversation, of course, with what you were against, right? And um, so I think Arendt's making the point that you're you're better off introducing students to a big, rich world that then they can discern their path in after they've as they're taking instruction from you, as they're in your classroom, and then beyond. Then you are just saying at a very young age, you're on your own. You figure it out. Yep. Right. That's not that's not really a liberation of students. No, you can't liberate them. And they, they have to do much of that themselves until they have until they they have certain skills and a certain basic knowledge. And and in that, you know, we really do suffer from a kind of deep historical and cultural amnesia. And there are certain things on on the left that view the past as just seeds of error and then on the right, there's also a not wanting to reckon with certain parts of the past, right? And a kind of instrumentalized view, sort of market-driven view of education, where it's increasingly just about advancement and profit. Both of those things in their, in their extreme forms lead to a kind of amnesia that's not helpful to us, right? What does Douglas say at the very beginning? He needed to know his his origins, right? He needed to know where he had come from and he needed a reference point in the past to understand where he is in the present. Lots of ways to do that, right? But liberal education has always been in whatever form about that inheritance, understanding where we are now in relation to where we've been and then moving into the future. It's a bad form of tradition if we're just taught to worship the past. And as I've already pointed out, you really can't do that because the intellectual past that we're inheriting is full of tensions and debates and contradictions. Necessarily so. Necessarily so. Right. And that's why, you know, I, I um, just in terms of, I'll, I'll let you finish out with a, you know, a closing thought. Seems as though we've run out of time. I, I feel as though we just started conversing. But even when, when time flies when you're having fun, you know, even a lot of these contemporary debates about the value of critical theory. People that maintain that, you know, we want to prevent children from reading these texts. I've always felt that that was as misguided as these hopeless screeds against liberal education. That, no, no, we need to admit all of those perspectives, but none of them are a final word, right? We're not, we're interested in providing students with the ability to think not to indoctrinate them. People talk about, you know, critical theory as though you give it to people and they're indoctrinated. No, there can be responses, rebuttals, you know, retorts to critical theory yeah. as well. But I'll, I'll give you a chance to close out here. Yeah. So 
What you said there about the last word is really important, I think. Great works leave gaps in them deliberately or silences or end on question that require, if we're attentive readers, listeners, watchers, could be a film, could be music, could be a a text, that require us as or invite us as participants, readers, listeners, viewers, to take the next step, to ask the next relevant question. Particularly Socrates' early dialogues always end in what feel like there's no, when students read them, well, what's the answer? Well, Socrates is expecting you to continue this dialogue, right? You, If you've been an attentive reader, you're in a sense a silent participant in the dialogue. Become an active speaker in the dialogue now and continue this. To go back again to the end of Ellison's Invisible Man, where he says, you know, could it be that on some lower frequency, I speak for you, right? This invisible man who's trying to speak for himself at the end reaches out to a potential audience, a potential conversation partner. Maybe you've connected with this book in some way, but that's the next unwritten chapter, the to-be-written chapter. Almost all of our great films do that too. They leave us with, with questions and certainly our authoritative religious texts do this, right? They're invitations, they're callings to each of us to participate more fully in the life that's been depicted in the authoritative religious text. An invitation for us to to continue to take these authoritative texts seriously. But if we just take them as texts that don't prod us to do the next thing, to develop the next line of inquiry, to live our lives differently, alone and with others, then those texts are not having the effect on us that they seek to have. So I think it's a very, sometimes liberal education is thinking, well, just learn these thoughts that people have thought great things in the past, and you're liberally educated. No, liberally educated, to be liberally educated is to know how to ask the next relevant question, to to continue the inquiry. And that's what the best books and artworks in our tradition seek to do with their audiences. That's a beautiful place to end. It has been enlightening and also pleasurable to be in conversation with you this afternoon. And with you, sir. No, and I, I, look, I look forward to, you know, reading more from you. You know, I was introduced to your work through Renovatio, but I'm going to go back and, 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 and add a few of your works to my library, and I look forward to conversing again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.